You may be seated. And if you would, turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. There's also in your bulletin insert a copy of the verses we'll be looking at, although you probably want to have your Bibles open because we will be jumping around to a few other passages. In this series on Lamentations for today, I've been seeking to find those key passages of Scripture that help us to focus in on what Lamentation is all about for us, for us today. Uh, we looked at the book of Lamentations, we looked at uh, 1 Corinthians, and we're looking now at 1 Peter. I've chosen a passage that I wanted to walk through to do kind of a, a textual, topical survey of this issue of lamentation. You know, in the intro, as far as context is concerned here, 1 Peter 1, 1 says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles. The other translations will translate that exiles as sojourners or pilgrims, aliens, strangers, temporary residents, people moving through, people who don't belong where they're at but need to find a permanent place to be, to elect exiles in the dispersion. The dispersion was happening in the first century when the persecution of the Roman government came upon new believers in Christ, uh, many of them being Jewish believers now in the Messiah, are being persecuted for their faith, and they're being pushed out from the areas they called home into outlying areas. And Peter's writing this epistle specifically to minister to those people who are going through a really, really severe trial. They're homeless. They are pushed out. I think it speaks to us a lot today, although we long so much to be in one place. Sometimes we just want to uh, be stable. We are fixated on creature comforts and the here and now. We true everything we do often to keep our way comfortable. But sometimes we're taken out of that comfort zone. Sometimes we're pushed by, by various trials that this passage makes reference to. The first century Jewish believers knew their father Abraham was called out of a steady place in Ur of the Chaldees to go to a promised land, a promise that God made to give him a place of rest. But he had to leave. He had to go through a period of, of sojourning, of being a pilgrim. But we're looking for how the Lord would fulfill for us this promise of a future home, this city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. So let's look at 1 Peter chapter 1. I'll read verses 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him 
and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your enduring Word, the Word that speaks to us as it spoke to these first century believers, that gives us hope and guidance for life and living. We thank You for Your truth. Lord, Your Son prayed that we would be sanctified by the truth. Lord, we need to see aright You, our situation, who we are, and what hope You give us in the gospel of Christ. Lord, I pray as we face various trials, the trials that we bring into this room with us that are unique to our experience, Lord, we know that You know them, that You're sovereign over them. And yet we want to learn from Your Word how we can respond in these sufferings and trials in ways that bring glory to our Savior, Jesus, so that the world would know. Father, I pray that You would open our eyes through the power of Your Holy Spirit, illumine Your Word today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. In looking at this series of lamentations for today, we remember that we lament when something we love is taken from us or something that we don't like is put upon us. And ultimately, we have to struggle in this world with all sorts of losses and all sorts of difficulties. In the Bible, we have a rich treasury of how God's redeeming love rescues us from the pain and the struggle and the suffering that we face. And these rich themes of redemption are what give us answers in the hope uh, or in the uh, times of suffering. And they, in turn, empower us to respond to life suffering in redemptive ways, in ways that honor Christ. We looked in Lamentations 3 at suffering and hope, that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies, they never come to an end. Great is His faithfulness. He is our portion, and we will hope in Him. We can hope in Him in the midst of suffering. And that keeps our eyes focused on where our hope is, but we also need, in the midst of that suffering, grace. And when we looked at 2 Corinthians 12, at Paul's thorn in the flesh, which he cried out, rightly so, three times, take this away, Lord, take it away, take it away. The answer was not to take it away. The answer was, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. We need grace in the midst of suffering because I believe that God has called us more than just to endure suffering and trials, more than just stick your nose to the grindstone and tough it out. That's not our calling as Christians. I think First Peter is written to call Christians to in the midst of their suffering, in the face of their suffering, to have joy, to celebrate our salvation. And when we celebrate our salvation, in the midst of these trials, we can have a supernatural, inexpressible joy that comes, that shows. And it looks different for every person. There are some people that are extroverted. You're going to see it bubbling and coming out of their face all the time. There are some people that have this deep and abiding joy that seems to never make it to their face, but you know it just is resting in there because they have a peace. I want us to consider in First Peter 1 what it is about 
our salvation that we need to celebrate, that we need to contemplate, that we need to think about and praise God for, and how it will enhance our ability to face trials so that we're not just slogging through, but that we're actually rejoicing in the midst of it. So, I want us to look at our salvation. Again, these redemptive themes are, are the hub of how we deal with suffering, and there are a few spokes that I have on your outline today, a few things for us to consider about our salvation, that we have been reborn, that we are rewarded, that we are guarded, that we are tested, that we are glorified. All these, if you consider as kind of spokes on a wheel that flow from or are a part of the salvation that we have in Christ Jesus. So, how do we celebrate? We celebrate, as Peter calls us in, in verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He starts off the entire book with this theme of, I got to bless the Lord. I want you to bless the Lord. It reminds me of Psalm 103, where David says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of His benefits who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. What are we blessing the Lord for? For our rich salvation, for the salvation that He has worked for us. And that gives us reason to praise God the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's according to His mercy. It's not because we deserve it. If we go by what we deserve, we deserve wrath and hell. But God gives us, because of His mercy, because of His grace, such a great salvation. Well, what do we consider about that salvation? First, in verse 3, the very end, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To be born again, reborn. This rebirth is essential for us to face trials, to understand what it means to be reborn. There are three threes that help me in ordination to memorize and remember what Scriptures deal with this doctrine of rebirth. It is First John 3, in verse 3, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus a Pharisee, a teacher of the Word of God, doesn't understand and needs to hear and have a rebirth to see the kingdom of God. To see the kingdom of God here and now as Jesus was ushering it in, but ultimately in His presence for eternity, the kingdom is now and not yet. That new birth gives us eyes to see a kingdom that is coming, a kingdom that's not of this world. The other three is Colossians 3:13, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Who made us alive? We didn't make ourselves alive. We're dead. The one who had to make us alive, who has caused us to be born again, as the way that Peter calls it, is God Himself. God does this work. And we respond by faith in Him. He gives us from this dead heart a, a living faith to believe on Him. And then Titus 3, verse 5 says, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, 
whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our sa Savior. Regeneration, reborn. This is what God has to do. It's the supernatural work of the Spirit of God giving life to dead people. And this is connected with the power of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is at work in that renewal that He creates in us. Regeneration is you're given new life. Renewal is that process that, that He makes us more Christ-like. And it's by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I love how it's described here, that He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. You know, when we do baptisms here, we sprinkle or pour that water. And I, when I sit over here, often have to navigate after Tony pours out the water on one of those children, a huge puddle. And I love it because it just, it just indicates the, what we believe about the work of the Holy Spirit who is lavished on us, poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Maybe, maybe your view of your salvation is just not big enough. Maybe rebirth which is going from dead to alive, isn't something you're contemplating as a Christian. Maybe you think, well, being a Christian is going to church on Sundays. It's being a part of other people who like to sing the same songs I do. They even have some similar political views that I do. They don't like the same things, and they like the same things. So I feel okay. If that's the, the level of your faith, if, if that's your understanding of Christianity and salvation, there's not enough depth for you to withstand the various trials that Peter talks about here. You need to think more deeply about what it means to be born again. He has caused you to be born again, giving you new life. Verse 4 describes another spoke of this wheel to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. This inheritance, an inheritance is a, is a promised or a hoped-for gift that's given. And that gift that's given can really help out, can be passed on from one generation to the next. But is an earthly inheritance secure? I mean, are those 401ks, those bank accounts, those stocks, those mutual funds absolutely secure, undefiled, imperishable? kept in a bank for you? That's not the inheritance. That's not the reward that we should be fixated on. But look, we're naturally inclined to just consider the here and now, the temporal, what's of this earth and what gives us security on this earth. But the reward that we have is kept in heaven for you, secured there for you. That reward Moses was looking for. In, Moses, or in Hebrews chapter 11, the end of the chapter, verse 24, it says, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of the Pharaoh's daughter. Remember, in a basket, he was picked up by the Pharaoh's daughter, a Hebrew raised by Egyptian royalty. He had it. He could have had it all. It says, Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin... He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. He had an inheritance promised to him. Now, we have the blessing of so much more revelation throughout the books of Scripture, more information about what that reward looks like, 
what it's secured by than Moses did. But he forsook all that he could have had as a royal in Egypt so that he could take the reproach of Christ because there was a different reward he was looking for. Are your eyes focused on a different reward than just the here and now, just accumulating stuff, bigger bank accounts, more reward here? Jesus, in Hebrews chapter 12, is described as the author and perfecter or the founder and perfecter of our faith. It says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, he's now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, as Jesus is our author, is the perfecter of our faith, and we look to him, we're running the race, he's going before us, we see that there was a joy set before him that gave him a strength to face the suffering in the here and now. He did pray honestly in his flesh, Lord, if it's possible, let this cup be taken away. He lamented to his Father in heaven, but at the same time, he was confident of the joy that he would have, the joy set before him. In Isaiah 53, that's described as he will see the, one, the, the, the reward of his sacrifice. When he laid down his life, he is ransoming a people unto God. He is then going to give us those He's ransomed, He's paid for our sins as a gift to His heavenly Father. That's the joy that Jesus was anticipating. So, it propelled Him to endure the cross, the reward that was His. But the suffering comes first, and then the reward. You remember on the road to Emmaus, when Jesus was speaking to those disciples, and they hadn't quite figured out who He was, and Jesus said to them in Luke 24, was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and then enter into His glory. The reward was yet to come, but He had to suffer these things first. I hope as we consider the reward that will come to us in our salvation, purchased by Christ, that's where we're resting in. That's where we're finding security. We, not only our inheritance, but we ourselves are guarded. It says in verse 5, who by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Part of our salvation means that we are guarded. What are we guarded by? God's power. Uh, This week I came across one of those armored trucks that you see outside every store taking money in, taking money out, and guards. Always two guards with a pouch, with a gun on their hip, going into a truck that is armored and plated and bulletproof glass. Why is there such an effort made to guard that? Well, because it's valuable, because it's precious, because we, we think we want it and keep it. That's why we set a guard on something. And the fact is, you and I are guarded by God's power through faith in a salvation ready to be revealed. But it's in the last time. When you face trials and difficulties, if you know that you are secure, eternally secure in the love of Christ for you, not because of works you've done in righteousness, but because of His mercy and grace, He saves you. He guards you. He keeps you. He holds you in His hand. 
always secure. We want security. People you work with and live with want security. One of the big risks, I think, today that people are trying to guard themselves against is identity theft, right? Identity theft can ruin your life, can ruin your credit, can ruin your financial profile. I just did a quick search online about how we can protect our identity. Maybe uh, the, the, the top identity protection devices would be identity force, identity guard, privacy guard, life lock, complete ID, ID watchdog. Now, all of these come with a price tag, and they cover various threats to your personal identity, and I, I have no problem with looking at those, considering those, weighing the risks, weighing the value, and taking what prudent measures you think you should to guard your identity. But I would challenge you to think a little bit deeper as well about what it means that your salvation is guarded in Christ. Now, that's going to take a little bit of investment as well. Maybe not so much money, but it will take time for you to really meditate on, think about, dig into what it means that you are guarded by Christ. We do that by being in God's Word, by celebrating these sacraments, by being in prayer and fellowshipping with one another. These ordinary means of grace help strengthen us and ground us, and that grounding is a safeguard when we face trials. Part of your salvation is, is, is understanding how much it means that you're guarded. You're not going to recognize that if you're not spending time with Him, if you're not spending time with His people. Your trials and your difficulties will still be there, but your perspective on them will be from a position of a guarded security. And, and the risks are out there, the threats are out there, just like identity theft is out there, but your guard on your security is the power of God. That's secure. We need to celebrate our salvation, these components of our salvation that Peter describes so that we're suffering these, while we're suffering these trials, we can have joy, a supernatural, inexpressible joy. This salvation, this faith is a tested faith. Look at verses 6 and 7. Peter says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So, in the midst of the trials, he says we should rejoice. In this, you do rejoice. What do you rejoice? You're not rejoicing in the various trials. You're re rejoicing in your salvation. And in the salvation, you're going to meet trials, though for now, now for a little while. I love that perspective that Peter gives. It's not eternity. This life is flying by, isn't it? Like, moment by moment seems to be just ticking by faster and faster. So, whatever trials you're facing, they are temporal and temporary. And that for a little while, if necessary, well, if God says it's necessary, it's necessary. These are ordained by God for a purpose. What is that purpose? Verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
So your faith is being tested in the midst of these various trials. Not so that you would stumble and fall. That's what Satan's purpose is in your trials. But God superintends over all that. And His purpose is to refine. That, that gold imagery as being refined by fire. The temperature of that metal is cranked up so that liquefies and any impurities that are in that gold or silver are just boiled to the surface and then scooped off so that it can be refined. That's what God is doing in those various trials in our lives. That, that's what He tells us is one of the purposes of these trials, to test our faith as gold would be tested so that there would be praise and glory and honor to Christ. Not so that, wow, look at how special Nathan is. He's doing great in that trial. But rather, so that God would be glorified. Christ would receive praise and glory and honor. I believe that God tests and brings trials in our lives to prepare us for future service. He has to refine us through these trials in order to make us prepared for how He's going to use us in the future, what He's going to do in our lives. Back in uh, 1992, I got to go on a mission trip with a team of 26 uh, students and a few professors from Moody Bible Institute to Uganda. And I met a man named Henry Arombi, and he was serving there in Uganda in the northern region of Goli as the archdeacon of that area. Uh, as soon as we were introduced to him, we didn't call him archdeacon because he told us, call me Uncle Henry. Just, just call me Uncle Henry. Okay, this man was bigger than life. He was, he was six foot five, and for the other Ugandans that were all around him, he towered head and shoulders over everyone else. He was an encouragement to each person on our team, taking personal time with us, encouraging us. I mean, I preached some of my first sermons there, and they stunk. And yet he was so encouraging. He was so um, pushing me forward in my love for God's Word, my love for the gospel. Now, I came to understand that 15 years before I met him, that under the reign of that tyrant Idi Amin, that he had been imprisoned for his faith, that his um, mentor and um, friend, Archbishop Janini Luam, was also arrested and killed. He was killed for his faith, and Uncle Henry was imprisoned. He was let go unharmed after a period of time, but he suffered persecution in those years. And I didn't know much about that 15 years before I met him. But that suffering and that trial and that testing was preparing him for being serious about the Word of God, about the centrality of the gospel, and being faithful to, to God. Because there were all sorts of temptations for compromising the true gospel, of just speaking what other people want to hear. And since that time, he became the archbishop of the Anglican Church in Uganda. Up until his retirement in 2012, he took hard stands against opposition from without and opposition from within for his orthodox 
and biblical views on a variety of subjects that Anglican churches in the United States have compromised on. And those faithful churches in the U.S. have sought to put themselves under the guidance and care of those Ugandan uh, bishops because of their faithfulness to the Word of God and the Gospel. Without that testing, without that trial, the refining that was necessary for his service in the future, it wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have been equipped. It wouldn't have been prepared. Our salvation is a tested salvation. Our salvation causes us to consider our glorification. Look at verses 8 and 9. He ramps up to, though you have not seen him, you and I, we, we haven't seen Jesus face to face. Peter did, but we have not seen him. And though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And you rejoice with a joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. There it is. It's the outcome. It's the end of this road. This life is not the end of the story. There is another life that we will live into eternity. And this is where our salvation finds its culmination. And if all of the components of our salvation for this life are considered and dwelt upon, we're missing out if we don't consider what it means in our glorification. We celebrated in Easter the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave and found hope for our own resurrection because of the certainty of His resurrection. And that is, we will be glorified. We will be raised again to, with new bodies. In 1 Corinthians 15, remember, it says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. Consider your glorification here. He says, The trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishable, this mortal must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that's written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of of death is sin, the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. That's what we have to come, our glorified state, our glorified bodies. And where will we live? Where will we spend eternity? Revelation 21 and 22 says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever 
and ever. That's the joy that is inexpressible. That's the joy that I can say it with my mouth, but I can't express totally what that means except to say there's more to it than that. When we contemplate the salvation that God has given us in Christ and what glorified state we will be in, that should fill us with a joy that is inexpressible. We will then obtain the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. So what does that mean for today? As we celebrate our salvation while the suffering and trials are here, we're going to see that inexpressible joy. We've considered being reborn, rewarded, guarded, tested, and glorified, but what does it look like in real life? These doctrines are good. Getting your head around them and thinking about these great truths of our salvation are important, but how do we make it concrete? How do we make it real in our lives? I need an example. I need a mentor. I need a coach along the way to help me see how to live out my salvation with a kind of joy that's inexpressible. I need somebody to teach me how to celebrate in the midst of the trials. Getting to preach through part of the book of Psalms gave me the opportunity to walk with David through many psalm after psalms and to see how he celebrated in the midst of his trials, to look back in First and Second Samuel at his life and what he was dealing with, yet his call for us to celebrate, to rejoice. So, I challenge you, spend some time in the Psalms. Just take the Psalm 120s and see where we are called to celebrate our salvation in the midst of the trials and see if the joy starts to come to your soul. Psalm 120, in my distress I called to the Lord and He answered me. Psalm 121, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. 122, I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. 123, you lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in heaven. If I had not been for the Lord who was on our side, when the people rose up against us and they would have swallowed us up alive, those who trust in God are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in His ways. Greatly they have afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice, lest your, let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? If we need to look for concrete examples of how to live joyfully, celebrating our salvation. Spend some time in the Psalms. Spend some time meditating on your salvation through the lens of this servant David, who is a sinner. Don't get me wrong. I mean, he was not a perfect example. He was flawed like we are. He faced suffering and he faced the consequences of his sin. And all in the midst of it, he cried out to the Lord, but he rejoiced in his salvation. Let's pray together. Father, it's hard for us to understand and to really appreciate all that you have done in saving our souls. We've scratched the surface of some of the things that Peter has laid out for us about our salvation, yet 
there's so much more to learn, so many more treasures to unearth and nuggets to be had. Lord, I pray that Your Word would continually minister to us, that Your Spirit would continually work into us joy of our salvation. Lord, restore unto us the joy of Your salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In preparation for communion and as a hymn of response, let's turn in our hymnals to number 528, My Faith Looks Up to Thee. We'll stand and sing verses 1 and 2.